Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and this episode is Q&A number 10. Remember, if you have questions that you want me to answer on the podcast, you can send them to me on michael at scientifictriathlon.com and that's Michael with a K. Or you can send them on Facebook, just go to scientifictriathlon.com and there's a Facebook Messenger widget down in the bottom right corner of the screen and through that you can send your Facebook messages to me as well. Before we get into today's question, a big thanks to our sponsors. First, we have Stack that you can find on stackzero.com, and that's S-T-A-C-0 spelled out, dot com. And that's where I got uh, both of my bike trainers from. I first got a Stack power meter, but now I'm on the Stack Zero Halcyon, the new smart trainer model that won the bike training accessory category award at Eurobike 2018. So that is a big award in some uh, stiff competition with uh, all the new bike trainers for 2018 uh, being being entered there so uh, a great great trainer that i highly recommend you can get it for 20 percent off with the promo code that triathlon show all one word all caps on stackzero.com and that applies to all of their bike trainer models whether you want the smart trainer or one of their cheaper but simpler models like the base or the power meter model and a big thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. And I have a very, very exciting news about Roka. They now have their UK and EU distribution up and running. So if you are in the UK or in the EU, you can now order anything and you won't have to deal with the customs and, and other duties, import taxes. You can get anything from the Roka websites that are uk.roka.com or eu.roka.com or you just go to roka.com and you select uh, the correct flag in the upper right corner of the screen you can uh, choose between their us eu uk or global websites so that is really exciting news so uh, now you can get your pick of wetsuits uh, sunglasses tri suits swim equipment anything that roca carries which is all the highest quality gear that you can find on the market so and you can get it for 20 percent off with the promo code that triathlon show all one word all caps all right so let's get into today's question which is from past guest on the show david nichols from the uk uh, living in moscow and uh, his episode was uh, number 130 called case study how david qualified for kona by training smarter and getting the details right i'll link to that in the show notes of course it's uh, a really good episode so i highly recommend you listen to it and if you are a listener of the trainer road ask a cycling coach podcast you may also have heard david on that podcast in one of their kona episodes so that was great to hear that one as well uh, so david writes now that you're doing more question podcasts which i love i had some questions that i have been that have been haunting me for a long time on 80 20 training I understand everything that Fitzgerald and others are saying about it being a rough guide, etc. Though I can't accept blindly the assertion that uh, copying the approach of the pros who train 20 to 30 hours a week works for time-crunched athletes. Despite the study they cited, all it showed for me is that VO2 workouts work, which is no surprise. The main reason I struggle with the concept is I'm a big believer in Trainer Road and follow their plans closely, apart from often replacing the long easy ride on Saturdays with sweet spot work. 
for example, instead of five hours easy, I would do five times 20 minutes sweet spot than one hour race pace. Their plans do not follow the 80-20 rule, especially as a rest between intervals also counts as high intensity according to Fitzgerald. I have achieved pretty decent results from the trainer road approach. At Kona, I was around 4.7 watts per kg as my FTP. Though I accept this might not have been the best approach, and I understand that the lack of aerobic work meant I could only hold 65% of FTP for the bike. So the question is, what do you think I'll lose out on by not employing the 80-20 rule? Or in other words, what benefits would I get from doing more aerobic work, slightly more VO2 work, and cutting out sweet spot work? I note I rarely felt I was too tired to hit sessions properly, etc. Though I guess in theory I could have done even harder VO2 sessions if I was more rested. I now have approximately 8 hours to ride per week. 1.5 hours of super hard VO2 max sessions and 6.5 hours of easy riding just doesn't feel like it would be as effective as 1 hour of VO2, 2 to 3 hours of sweet spot and the rest easy. The same would be true if I had 10 or 12 hours. Along the same lines, if I was to use the 80-20 approach, would I have to do insanely tough VO2 sessions to make sure my TSS was comparable with the trainer road approach? Or should I not worry about TSS and just hope that other benefits I would get, better fat utilization for example, would override this? My feeling is that the answer is that it's personal or unclear, and I should try both approaches, especially if I feel I have done a lot of one approach, I could benefit from the other. Uh, a bit like you said, you benefited massively from a huge amount of miles on the bike this year. And he's re- uh, referencing my podcast interview on the Oxygen Addict podcast uh, there. However, the latter case is slightly different as uh, you are increasing the number of hours you are doing, which is not an option for me. Interested to hear your thoughts. All right, so uh, first, a little bit of background. Uh, He mentions uh, Matt Fitzgerald, who was a guest in episode 152 called 8020 Triathlon Revisited. And we also had the other episode with uh, Matt's co-author of the book 8020 Triathlon, uh, David Warden, on back in episode 121, which was called 8020 Triathlon, Get Faster by Training Slower. And I also have uh, talked about 80-20 in a previous Q&A episode, in Q&A number three, the validity of 80-20. So do go and check that out. Uh, So, and first, this, I think, also after some uh, additional discussions with with David on this, uh, I want to first discuss my stance on 80-20 a bit uh, more generally and not directly answer your question. Uh, I do not follow 80-20 or any given distribution. It really depends completely on the athlete, how much training they're doing, how old they are, how they seem to be responding to training and recovering and uh, and adapting. So so I can say that I, pers- I personally agree 100% with you in one of the last comments you make there that I think it is really completely individual and it's unclear. Of course, there, there are some thresholds perhaps that you can't do. You can only do so much intense work and uh, perhaps you need to do a certain amount of intense work but but I think that if you stay away from the extremes, I, I do not believe in any training intensity distribution being necessarily better than another because there are so many individual factors that, that go into this. Uh, and I also agree with what you say that over the course of a season or perhaps several seasons, it is definitely worth changing approach every once in a while. Uh, so giving VO2 max training uh, a try, as you say, uh, even 
as somebody who gets great response from in this example sweet spot training which i am also a massive fan of and uh, incorporate a lot in my coaching uh, i do think that uh, you can start to see diminishing returns from it uh, or you will see diminishing returns from it at some point although when that point comes that that again is individual but Mixing it up and, and adding some blocks of VO2 max training or some other type of training stress uh, to give the body a bit of a change, a new stress to adapt to and improve. I do think that that's beneficial and something that you should definitely consider. Uh, but the way that I would look at this is not necessarily... I, I would say that the new stimulus that you apply here, uh, for example, if you talk about VO2, it's it's the VO2 max type training. It's not... I, I don't see 80-20 as a stimulus it's the result of what type of training stimulus you are applying if you if you know what i mean and if you do a vo2 max focused block then naturally you're going to have more high intensity and probably more low intensity compared to a sweet spot block which is going to be more moderate and less of the the high and low stuff uh, so but in in that case the sweet spot is the the stimulus and in, in the former case the vo2 max is the stimulus and it's not uh, 80-20 is not the training stimulus, 60-40 or whatever it may have been on the sweet spot type of training is not the stimulus either. So so the training intensity distribution, that's a result of the stimulus you are applying. That's how I would how, how I would look at it. So another way to look at this, especially for somebody with, uh, with your experience, is that I do not think it makes sense to choose any given training intensity distribution and then plan your training according to that. I think you should uh, you should plan your training. You should pick up pick the workouts that you want to do. Like let's say you want to do two VO two max workouts per week. You add them to your schedule. You you add the rest of the workouts, whether they are easy or perhaps you even add a sweet spot work workout in there as well, and the rest uh, just easy riding. And uh, and then you see are you uh, then you look at your schedule and see are you happy with the result? Do you think you can do that? Do you think it provides enough stimulus but not too much so that you become completely wrecked and then of course you have to go out and do the training and see how you respond and perhaps adapt if you find that it's too much but i i definitely that's how i would approach it and how i do approach it myself you you plan the training first and then it might be interesting definitely to check the training intensity distribution and calculate that to see roughly where it falls but i would not try to pigeonhole yourself into any given intensity distribution uh, for example, for somebody who would be riding twice per week, this would be, which I coach a few athletes that do that, uh, quite a few actually, if they only uh, can or want to train six times per week, then quite often it's two bikes, two swims and two runs, If they are, especially if they are more of a beginner athlete. And then 80-20 is absolutely out of the question if, we, if I want them to improve. We, we need to apply more intensity so usually it might be one vo2 max workout and one sweet spot workout uh, for if somebody's on trainer road for example and then in some weeks we we add more of an easy uh, easy week so so every fourth week they might do just two endurance rides but uh, but that's just an example of how individual it is and how much it also depends on training volume although this athlete might be training six or even seven hours per week depending on how long their sessions are so to wrap up that uh, thread of thought, I think that 8020 is useful as a guideline and a starting point for somebody who has less experience and 
don't know at all what a manageable training schedule looks like for them, especially if they don't have a coach that can help them with that and adjust their schedule for them. But for somebody with your experience, uh, I I think that you should start with the training and with the planning of the training and then see see what it ends up being if you, if you're interested in doing that, which uh, it makes sense and it's it's a useful exercise to do that I do uh sometimes not all all the times but with some athletes i do calculate all the intensities after the fact after i already plan it and uh, and then see how they adapt and uh, that is useful information and you learn something from it all right so the first actual question that you wrote was what do you think i lose out on by not employing the 80 20 rule or in other words what benefits would i get from doing more aerobic work slightly more vo2 work and cutting out sweet spot i note i rarely felt i was too tired to hit sessions properly though i guess in theory i could have done even harder vo2 sessions if i was more rested well this to me sounds like you didn't miss out on too much at all (laughs) so i don't know how much you improved over the course of your training for kona Uh, you say that you were at 4.7 watts per kg for the race Uh, so if you started at let's say anywhere in the 4.2 to up to 4.4 range that is quite a significant improvement that you've made a very significant improvement depending on where you started but but it's like at your level ftp can only be increased so much in a given training cycle so so to me it sounds like you nailed it man (laughs) so that's that's a really good improvement uh assuming that you made some improvement but but i think you did it uh, i don't think that you would uh, praise the trainer road plans the sweet spot based work so much if if you didn't do that and uh, and again i too am a big fan of those plans and the sweet spot uh, sweet spot type approach in general so so for this training cycle uh, i don't think you missed out on anything especially considering that uh, vo2 max is not really a limiter for ironman performance but what you did was more muscular endurance type of thing which for an ironman is uh, great it's more race specific than vo2 max type work although that's not to say that vo2 max type training doesn't work for ironman training i know examples of athletes that have done really great on vo2 max focused training for ironman actually one of the age group winners in the 25 to 29 uh, category i think uh, i've interacted with him is uh, swedish and and he follows a very strict vo2 max type approach so that might be a, a future case study who knows uh, anyway, but what I already talked about a little bit, you might miss out, though, if you keep doing the same thing season after season. And that's, like, to put it simply, you, you will need to raise your ceiling at some point because your threshold will start to approach the ceiling that VO2 max imposes on it unless you spend some dedicated time to, to raising that VO2 max ceiling. So for those listeners that don't might not know what I'm talking about here, your threshold you can typically like with good good training you can you can raise your your ftp your functional threshold power to roughly 90 percent with really good training of your vo2 max power so your maximum aerobic power essentially uh but uh so that but usually for many age group athletes you are, might only be at 80 percent or so so you can do a lot of training and you keep increasing your threshold and even though your VO2 max doesn't increase, your threshold increases and your performance increases. But once you get close to that 90%, you, you can only eke out so much more uh, improvements in your threshold. And then you need to spend that time to actually increase your maximum aerobic power. And then you have more room to grow to well, once you have raised that ceiling again. That gives you the opportunity to build a higher threshold again. 
so that's my my take it's quite quite simple really i don't think you missed out anything now but long term you do want to make sure that you you mix it up a little bit at some point so the, the other question here i'm reading again verbatim along the same lines if i was to use the 80 20 approach would I have to do insanely tough VO2 sessions to make sure my TSS was comparable? A TSS, by the way, being training stress score for those listeners not familiar. To make sure my TSS was comparable with the trainer road approach? Or should I not worry about TSS and just hope that other benefits I would get, like better fat utilization, would override this? Yeah, so this is a, this is a great question and uh, one that uh, I'm glad you brought up because this is something that I think a lot of athletes they place way too much emphasis and overvalue TSS way too much. Uh, so uh, if you were to do this, what you suggest, do more of a VO2-focused block or 80-20 uh, block in general, I would definitely not worry about TSS. I would worry about keeping a similar training volume, so at least the same and higher if you can, but it sounds to me that you're at your limit time-wise, so then just keep the same volume and that's fine. And focus on nailing the key VO2 max sessions that you have in your program. And this would probably mean a significantly lower training stress score, as you are aware. But uh, I definitely do not think that that is a problem. We, we need to keep in mind that not all TSS is created equal. And, and I do think that TSS is a really poor performance indicator. And it's often overvalued and misused as a performance indicator which is which it is not it's it's just a tool and it can be very useful it is a useful tool that i like but it can and should only be used in context of everything else that's going on with your training with the type of training that you're doing the discipline like swim tss and bike tss and run tss are all different so so that's uh, those are some general things that i would i would advise and so it, Basically, to answer your question, no, don't worry about TSS. Get your volume to the same level and add the VO2 workouts that you can. Nail those workouts. And if you're doing that, then you're getting the, the adaptations. And uh, so you mentioned fat utilization. So that's, uh, yeah, that's one example. You could do try to do your easy running. Some of it, you could do like one or two rides per week. You could do as easy rides in a fasted state or even... Uh, as a as an evening ride after a hard VO2 max uh, ride in the in the morning, and then uh, try to not have much carbs at all in between those sessions, and then do the uh, the the second ride of the day as an easy ride in a low glycogen state. Uh, another way is to just simply try to find your fat max zone, which is usually around about your first uh, ventilatory threshold. So. The high end of your zone too, I put simply. So doing a lot of work uh, there would uh, improve your fat utilization. Of course, the other uh, obvious benefit is improved VO2 max. And uh, with VO2 max, you are probably you are quite likely to also increase your FTP because VO2 max tends to pull FTP with it, although not necessarily to the exact same extent, to the exact same percentage improvement as you would get in VO2 max, but but it does some uh, pulling on the on the threshold so that you could see an improvement there. And definitely, as discussed, you would get more room to grow your FTP once you increase that VO2 max. And and these benefits, fat utilization, improved VO2 max, and improved FT threshold, these are all physiological adaptations and physiological benefits. They will benefit you in racing and in training. And TSS, 
as a comparison is just a proxy for training stress but as we know training stress does not equal improvements in performance and it does not equal adaptations it may do uh, but if we take it into context of what training you're doing and how much you can handle so that's why i think it is critical that we focus more on eliciting physiological adaptations and less on just uh, the amount of training stress that we accumulate for the sake of accumulating training stress and one way to look at this would actually be that the more uh, physiological adaptations that you can elicit uh, with the least amount of training stress the better because then you will be doing you will be eliciting those physiological adaptations at a reduced risk of injury and illness and all other things that can derail your training and your race performances now this does not mean that i'm i'm not saying that your goal should be to decrease tss if you can handle it and you have you have shown that you can handle a certain amount of tss but uh, what i'm saying is that since you are limited by time rather than what your by what your body can handle then your tss will probably decrease when you change the training approach at some point to the more vo2 max focused training and you should be okay with that if on the other hand time was not an issue and you had the opportunity to add a couple of extra hours of easy riding or riding at your high zone 2 in your fat max zone to get the same or similar level of tss that you had on the trainer road sweet spot plans then uh, then i would recommend doing that uh, because you would add the extra volume as well and uh, yeah you, you've shown that you can ha- handle the training stress so uh, so that would be my recommendation in that case but uh, but i would not focus on on making your your hard workouts extremely hard just for the sake of of accumulating tss and to match the the workouts that you have been doing on a trainer road sweet spot type of training plan so i hope that that makes sense now i wanted to uh, do a little bit of a not a deep dive this time because i don't have time for it uh but uh but a little bit of a uh a look into some of the the interventional studies and studies in general that are brought up and cited in AD20 triathlon as evidence of the AD20 approach for age groupers since uh, as you state here somewhere in your question you don't buy that uh, what the professionals do on 20 to 30 hours per week that that can apply to age groupers and yeah i agree with that completely or or i would say that the volume is uh, the differential differentiating factor and not, not whether you're professional or not because there are age groupers that do 20 to 25 hours per week and for them i totally buy that 80 20 is uh, the best way to go because at that amount of volume i think that uh, you're approaching if you do any more intensity than 20 percent of that volume then then you're you're really on the nice edge so so it makes sense but but i think that's what makes the biggest impact like how much volume you're actually training at and if you're training 10 hours per week or 12 hours per week or even 15 hours per week i think there is room for more than 20 percent at moderate to high intensities anyway so the first study that was cited here is uh called training intensity distribution during an ironman season relationship with competition competition performance it's by munos seiler and colleagues and uh, i'm just going to take my book here which i should have had in front of me so just give me a few seconds here there we go okay so so in 8020 triathlon uh, i'm going to read here because it's a, a great summary of the study 
So they write that uh, the subjects here were nine recreational triathletes preparing for an Ironman triathlon. Uh, Seiler and his colleagues tracked the amounts and proportions of time these athletes swam, cycled, and ran at low, moderate, and high intensity during 18 weeks leading up to the competition. After the race, they conducted statistical analysis in search of associations between specific training patterns and performance. They found that the athletes spent the highest percentage of their total training time at low intensity, achieved the fastest Ironman finishing times. And yes, that percentage was very close to 80. Seiler's team concluded, performing about 75% to 80% of all training sessions at an intensity below the ventilatory threshold might maximize performance combined with a certain degree of moderate to intense training. So the thing that I first wanted to check here is, well, how much did they actually train? So I went to look at the study and... uh, this uh, the volume is quantified in distance rather than hours uh, which i don't like and it's also only quantified for the peak week the biggest week uh, so the distance in the peak week was 9 to 12 kilometers per week for swimming this is so the ranges here indicate different athletes did uh, different volumes 330 to 390 kilometers per week for cycling and 55 to 78 kilometers per week for running and considering that in their baseline tests, the anaerobic thresholds uh, on average for these athletes were 227 or FTP, 227 watts on the bike, 11.7 kilometers per hour on the run. So that's slower than five minutes per kilometer or eight minutes per mile and 0.87 meters per second for the swim. So that's slower than 145 pace per 100 meters on the swim considering that these are not elite age groupers by by any means this sort of week uh, probably i did actually calculate like what it could have been and i was very generous in putting the numbers on the lower side uh, and i calculated this week would have taken them anywhere from at a minimum 20 hours but probably much more than that to 26 27 hours and i think as i said that i'm generous and probably you might add two hours at both of those and 22 to 28 29 hours And this is a peak week, of course, so not all weeks were this big. But I think it stands to reason that they didn't just suddenly go from 12 hours per week, for example, to 25 hours. So this must have been a higher volume program. And then it makes all the sense in the world that uh, 75 to 80% low intensity works the best. No questions. Uh, I just question whether this is applicable for, as you do as well, for, for 10 to 12 to 14, 15 hours even per week. If 15 hours is your peak week and 10 hours is your average, then that's a whole different ballgame. So the next uh, study that is cited in 8020 Triathlon is called Polarized Training Has Greater Impact on Key Endurance Variables Than Threshold, High Intensity or High Volume Training. And it's by uh, Stegel and Sperlich uh, from the University of Salzburg. And I'm actually going to read from uh, from their abstract rather than from the H20 triathlon because I think their abstract here is really, really good. It reads, Endurance athletes integrate four conditioning concepts in their training programs. High volume training, threshold training, high intensity interval training, and a combination of these aforementioned concepts known as polarized training. The purpose of this study was to explore which of these four training concepts provides the greatest response on key components of endurance performance in well-trained endurance athletes. 48 runners, cyclists, triathletes, and cross-country skiers with a VO2 max of 62.6 
were randomly assigned to one of four groups, so these four different training methodologies, uh, performing over nine weeks. An incremental test, work economy, and VO2 peak tests were performed. Training intensity was heart rate controlled. Results. Polarized training demonstrated the greatest increase in VO2 peak, uh, plus 6.8 milliliters per minute per kilogram, or 11.7%. Wow, that's big. Time to exhaustion during the ramp protocol, uh, plus 17.4%. And peak velocity slash power, plus 5.1%. Velocity slash power at 4 millimoles per liter of blood increased after polarized with uh, plus 8.1% and after high-intensity interval training with plus 5.6%. No differences in pre- to post-changes of work economy were found between the groups. Body mass was reduced by 3.7% following high-intensity interval training with no changes in the other groups. With the exception of slight improvements in work economy in the threshold group, both high-volume training and threshold had no further effects on measured variables of endurance performance. Conclusion, polarized training resulted in the greatest improvements in most key variables of endurance performance in well-trained endurance athletes. Threshold and high-volume training did not lead to further improvements in performance-related variables. So, okay, let me scroll down here a bit in the study to see what the groups actually did. I already looked at this. But the polarized training group, they did on average 11.5 hours per week or nine weeks with uh, 68% of their training at a low intensity and 6% at a moderate intensity and 26% at a high intensity. So note there that they're not even at 70% low intensity, even though this is called the polarized group. So, so this is something that, uh, that we need to keep in mind. We need to actually go and look at what they did. And I didn't read the entire study today as I record this episode, but I have read it in the past. And I seem to remember that the prescription was 80%, but what they actually ended up doing was a bit uh, less than that. So more moderate and high than low. And uh, and they included uh, what the athletes actually did. I might misremember, but I think this is what, what happened in this study. The high-intensity uh, interval training group, they did 7.3 hours per week, so significantly less volume. And they did 43% low intensity, 57% high intensity. The threshold group, and note here that threshold, it really, uh, it's, in my opinion, the way that we typically use training terminology, a better term would be moderate intensity group, because it it does not mean that they do 100% FTP or 90 to 100% FTP workouts all the time. In fact, I think that they do relatively little, if anything, of it. And what we would consider 90 to 100% FTP might often be considered high-intensity training in uh, the the studies that we see in uh, in the research field that are based on lab testing. So this threshold group, take the name with a grain of salt and uh, and be aware that it's corresponding to more moderate uh, type of training. They did 9.3 hours per week and 46% of it was low intensity and 54% was moderate intensity. And finally, the high volume training group did 11.3 hours per week, so similar to the polarized training. And they did 83% at low intensity and uh, 6% at moderate intensity. No, sorry, 16% at moderate intensity and 1% at high intensity. So this is actually the group that was closest to 
following the 80-20 because they, they were at 83% and uh, the polarized group was only at 68%. So, so this is uh, this is really interesting actually to see that uh, the, the intensity really plays a crucial ro- role here. The fact that the polarized group did a lot more high intensity than the high volume training group at a similar volume seems to have made a big difference. And apparently, since they had some great improvements, sixty eight percent of low intensity was not uh, too much intensity at the higher intensities. So. <laughs> I guess the the takeaway here is is that this study it can be used uh, as uh, something as evidence for eighty twenty, but when you look into it, it's not it's not really as clear cut. And 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 I think one of the things that I see whenever I calculate training intensity distributions, I for the ten to twelve to fifteen hour per week athletes that I coach. Uh, it typically ends up being around about 70% or so of low intensity. That That's quite normal, although it depends. It can be 65, it can be 75, it can even be 80. But it's rarely 80. It's typically between 65 and 75, and I would say 70 is, is quite uh, quite normal. So, so, so it's quite interesting to see that this study showed how great improvements this sort of distribution can give. And that's not to say I'm not going to start to intentionally chase 70% low intensity for this reason either. I still think that it's all completely individual and uh, and I always plan before and only see if I have time and want to have some fun and learn something, I go and calculate the training intensity distribution. But uh, but I think that that's secondary to actually really planning and uh, and using a lot of other tools, including subjective feedback and ratings of recovery to to see what how much is too much and how much is uh, a good amount of hard training. Uh, so finally, the final study that's uh, cited in eighty twenty triathlon is six weeks of polarized training intensity distribution leads to greater physiological and performance adaptations from a threshold than a threshold model in trained cyclists and it's by neil and colleagues and again uh, the threshold model here refers to moderate intensity so if i read from 8020 triathlon it reads that uh, scientists at sterling university manipulated the training of competitive cyclists for six weeks half of the subjects did 80 percent of their training at low intensity and 20 percent at high intensity and the other half did 57% of the training at low intensity, 36% at moderate, and 7% at high intensity, as is more typical of recreational endurance athletes. After six weeks, the subjects backed off their training for four weeks to reset their fitness and then switched programs. Before and after each six-week training block, all of the cyclists completed a 40-kilometer time trial, on average, performance in this test improved by 2.3% after 80-20 training, a significant amount for already fit athletes, and by just 0.4% after typical training. The winner, 80-20. Uh, so, uh, so there you go. Let me see here what my comments were. Yeah, so first comment, training time. I went to the study and looked at that. They did three workouts with either high-intensity work or moderate intensity, depending on the group in the lab and they also added two to three low intensity sessions at home so the polarized group did on average six hours and 20 minutes per week and the threshold group or moderate training group did seven hours and 30 minutes per week and i I would say that the big problem here with the threshold group is that 
it's really I am pretty confident that this intensity that they did their workouts at is lower than a sweet spot. It's more like tempo work, so 80% FTP or so. And I don't know this for a fact, but but I think I, I think I am right. And uh, the reason being that their thresholds here are determined based on on lactate testing. So they use the uh, lactate threshold and the lactate turnpoint terminology, which corresponds to the first ventilatory and second ventilatory threshold, or aerobic and anaerobic threshold. I know this is so confusing. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, I, I have episodes. If you go, go to my website and you search in the search bar for uh, thresholds, then, then you should find my episode where I explain all of this. Anyway, uh, the point here being that usually the the lactate firm turn point, or which is the second ventilatory threshold, more or less, or the FTP that we use, it's typically much lower when you measure it in the lab compared to when you do an FTP test and take 95% of your 20-minute uh, peak power. Uh, so I've seen research that I believe I remember that it was usually 10% is is a common discrepancy, so that your your threshold might be 10% lower if you measure it in the lab compared to if you measure a 20-minute test. So that's a lot. That That's a big difference. And and what it means essentially is that that if, if these athletes are training at uh, a moderate intensity compared to their threshold that is set to uh, set to something that is already much lower than your F- your typical FTP, how you would measure your FTP, it's their their baseline is the ninety percent of your FTP, and then they perhaps uh, ride at ninety percent of that, so then they're down at. 80% of what you would consider FTP. So they're doing tempo work, zone-free work, and not sweet spot work. That's what I think is the case, and that's what, what is quite typically the case in research studies because of the fact that they do, for obvious reasons, they do the lactate tests in the lab to determine their thresholds. And to be clear, that's the correct way really to determine your threshold and not your FTP. But FTP is a great way to anchor your training around. And what it really means is that a lot of sweet spot workouts could are borderline, should be borderline classified as high intensity, almost high intensity, not not quite, but almost high intensity, because they might be very close or at your actual lactate threshold uh, if you were to measure it in the lab. Uh, so so that's uh, that's an issue that I see with with this study. Other than that, it's it's very interesting. Of course, uh, the subjects in this study were only 12, I think, six in each group, or they, they did a crossover, so 12 subjects total. Actually, let me add one thing. I just went back and looked at the paper again. They did specify what the workouts were for the polarized and the threshold or moderate training group. And in the moderate group, they say that the, the intensity was midway between the lactate threshold and the lactate turn point. So, so if we believe that the lactate turn point is at roughly 90% of FTP and uh, the lactate threshold might be at uh, 65 to 70% of FTP, since we assume that FTP is overestimating the lactate turn point by 5 to 10%, then that means that, that these, yes, we, they might have been doing the intense the intense work at roughly 80%. So it's not too intense. It's tempo work and it's lower intensity than sweet spot, which to me, again, it's it's very clear that's that's not a good training protocol. So so it's not a surprise that they did not improve. And I don't think that the 80-20 approach 
is the reason for that. I just think that their intense workouts were not intense enough. And uh, as you say, you also commented that one of the studies cited in in a different context was uh, proof that VO2 max workouts are great. And, and I agree with that as well, although I don't have that study in front of me. When we compare in this study here, the, the sessions that the polarized uh, training group did, they did uh, six times four minute intervals with two minute rest periods. So as and uh, the intensity here was uh, five to ten percent greater than the lactate lactate turn point. So in FTP terminology, probably they were doing them right at FTP. So they were getting uh, six times four minutes at at around FTP with two minute recovery, and that is a much better workout than than doing uh, doing their intervals. I forgot how long they were the the tempo workouts that the other group did. Uh, yeah, there were 60 minutes, 60 minutes at tempo. So 60 minutes at roughly, let's call it 80% FTP. Uh, so I would pick 24 minutes at threshold, uh, seven days a week, or not not quite, but you know, you know what I mean. I, I think that it's just a much more effective training protocol. And I think that that's what I take away from that study and not that any given training intensity distribution is uh, better than the other. So that's about it. Uh, just going back to my to my notes here yeah well this is actually one of the things that makes applying these sorts of distributions and research findings difficult that you're not comparing apples to apples uh, if we are using you i mean generally as an athlete when you're using ftp to anchor your intensities uh, or even 20 minute tests in general or those sorts of things compared to anchoring it to to lab lactate tests which is used in in research studies and and also another thing is that in in the literature, heart rate is very often used, and that is very very different uh, compared to using power, for example. In some cases, I know that power is used, but quite often heart rate is used in in the literature in this field, and especially I think in almost all retrospective studies that have analyzed what the elite athletes do and what their training intensity distributions are uh, retrospectively. I think that uh, that heart rate is uh, is really dominant uh, there. And when I look at my own data for example for I, I just look at I'm just taking my my last weeks of running, my last four weeks of running and I'm now in the early off season and I've really only been running very easy. Uh and I don't have I since I started running on my Ventum, by the way, again a shout out to Ventum. I love my Ventum C. It's so fast. Uh, I haven't. Uh, I've been lazy and I haven't put my power meter on it from the road bike. So, so I've been riding that without a power meter. So I don't have bike power from the last four weeks. I have run power and I have run, run heart rate. And when I look at my run power data, I have been do- following an eighty twenty distribution, eighty percent in at low intensity, twenty percent at uh, moderate usually. And but based on heart rate, <laughs> I follow a ninety-nine to one percent distribution. <laughs> so, so go figure. Uh, there is a large difference, and uh, and this changes, of course, throughout the season. And you need to be diligent with keeping things up to date. Uh, but this goes to show, like the sensitivity and the potential error sources that exist in these data sets and these retrospective studies, which makes the interventional studies that I've talked about here much more interesting to look at. But uh, they have all sorts of... They they do not, uh, in any clear-cut way, show that 80-20 distribution is better than any other, in my opinion. Uh, so what else did I have here? Yeah, so so... As Matt talked about, the best way to assess a distribution is based on the session goal approach, 
And you also mentioned that. So, for example, five times three minutes as hard as possible with uh, three minutes recovery. That would mean 30 minutes at high intensity since the recoveries are also included in that, uh, as you mentioned. But uh, And that would be regardless of heart rate. So that is a better approach for, for sure. So, wow, this has been a long episode for Q&A and for just one question. Uh, but I do hope that uh, going a little more in-depth is that quality is, is uh, preferred over quantity, so to say. Uh, I want to explain one more thing. And that is uh, uh, how I do my journalism here with this podcast, uh, put simply. Because, David, you mentioned in our communication there that you, you thought that I was a proponent of 80-20. And I have received... Uh, quite a few other emails that indicate that uh, others may believe that as well for example i get emails asking can you make an 80 20 training plan for me or do your training plans that you sell on your website follow the 80 20 principle so uh, so i want to be clear on that no i'm not well i think i've made that clear already i do not i'm not a proponent of 80 20 but but i think that the the reason that uh that a lot a lot of listeners get that impression probably is because I've done now at least two specific interviews on the topic of 8020. And it's because I think it's a it, it's a good topic, it's a legit topic, and uh, it's something that we can all learn from. But uh I do not I, I agree with everything that all of my guests say on the podcast. And this uh, the last episode with Matt, like I, I do think that there are a lot of great points in that, uh, but I do not agree that A twenty is the the greatest way to train for all age group triathletes, and I think there's also the very important distinction here of triathlon and running, for example. I think that for age groupers, running is quite different, and uh, A twenty might be something that I would follow more closely if when I'm if I'm coaching runners right now I do not really do that yeah I do coach one runner uh, but anyway so so I, I think there are so many things to take into account here but just in general like the fact that I bring somebody on does not mean that I 100% agree with all of the things that they are going to say on the podcast because then I would be changing my opinion every single week and uh, that's uh, not really helpful for anybody uh, it's I want to learn from the guests I want you to learn and I want and I think everything is there's no black and white answers really so so i think we can all learn from different uh, opinions by having being open-minded but also being a bit critical and uh, and really thinking about the the topic that is discussed and and this question now from you david that really made me look into a few of these things in more detail like for example looking into the, the that iron man study and the other studies as well and trying to think of well why do I think that they don't necessarily are evidence that 8020 is the best thing since sliced bread you know so so I think I think it's it's useful and that's that's how I do journalism I do I am selective with my guests and uh, and when I bring Matt on I know that I already from the start that I'm not a proponent of 8020 but I know that Matt is a very knowledgeable guy and uh, has uh, a great lot to offer and uh, and I can learn a lot from him so that's a no-brainer uh, for me to to invite somebody like him or somebody who has uh, other opinions that might be different from me, but I, I know that they are very knowledgeable, very good at what they do, and opinions may be different, and, and that's completely fine. What I do not do, where I am selective, is I do not invite people that 
do what I would consider uh, selling snake oil or <laughs> anything like that. Not necessarily even selling in a selling sense, but uh, but being a proponent of something that I simply think is clearly not a good thing to do. And uh, I don't even want to give any examples of that, uh, but uh, right now. Uh, but but I guess you can email me if you want to have examples. Uh, so, but but that's the way that I do journalism. That I I do want to bring different opinions uh, to the forefront on the podcast and make you think, make me think, make you have you learn and have me learn more. And and that is how we evolve. But that does not mean that just because somebody has been on the podcast that I use all of those things myself in my training or that that's something that's even going to impact my training or my coaching or anything like that or my uh, my approach to endurance sports it's uh, it's just another potential piece of input that might or might not be used so hope this clarifies things a little bit and uh, to answer those questions by the way about whether my training plans follow 80 20 no they do not for example i did calculate the training intensity distribution for my recent 70.3 intermediate plan the average training volume if i recall correctly is uh, i don't even remember might have been nine hours per week or so uh, and uh, the intensity distribution there i think was roughly 70 30 so 70 percent low intensity so if you really want an 80 20 plan then you should uh, buy them from uh, from matt uh, he has them on training peaks and not from me because my training plans uh, at least some of them do not follow 80 20 that's not something that i uh, that i strive for uh, so I guess that's about it. I hope that you enjoyed this episode and found it useful. If you're new to the podcast, please subscribe and uh, so that you automatically get the shows as they are released. And if you have been here for a while, then uh, please go and rate and review the podcast. Uh, thank you, Chris, uh, an athlete that I coach. He promised that he would uh, he would post one of the first german itunes reviews for my podcast and i'm going to go and have a look if you did that or not so uh i'm watching you chris all right a big thank you finally to our sponsors first we have roca that you can find on roca.com or eu.roca.com or uk.roca.com no more customs or import taxes if you're in the UK or the EU. Fantastic news. And uh, even better, you can get 20% off with the code DATTRIATHLONSHOW, all one word, all caps. And by the way, uh, as this episode is released on Thursday, the 29th of November, there might still be a Black Friday week uh, promo going on. So check that out. Uh, it uh, might apply to you. I really don't know. Uh, but that's worth considering. But again, 20% off with the promo code that Triathlon Show, all one word, all caps, and uh, all the details are in the episode description. And big thanks to Stack that you can find on stackzero.com. They make the world's quietest bike trainers that are also foldable and portable, and they have different models, the smart trainer version, the power meter version, and the base version. No wear and tear on the tire anymore with uh, only magnets to, to produce resistance. So it's a great, great product, Eurobike award-winning product. Get 20% off with the promo code DATTRIATHLONSHOW, all one word, all caps, on stackzero.com. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon. <laughs>